So we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Uh, and if you really don't have a Bible at home, take ours. Just take it right out of the pew. Nobody will stop you on the way out and tackle you or anything. At least not for that reason. We can be a little friendly at times, but hopefully not, <laughs> not like that. Have you ever bought a used car? I just sent chills down some people's backs, probably. <laughs> Used car shopping. I want to give you two scenarios, okay, of, of what could happen buying a used car. Um, they're extremes. But let's say one of them, you're, you're driving down the road and you see one of those used car dealerships. And you know what I'm talking about, the unaffiliated one-off, you know, little lot, little shack somewhere. It looks like it's crumbling down and and, and you pull in there and you think, oh, they've got a one-day sale. This will be great. You know, a big sign, easy, low rates, great financing, great deals. You know, come on in. And a guy comes out and he's got kind of a, a greasy plaid suit on and, and his hair's real slick back and he has kind of a, a gold tooth that glints in the sunlight as he gives you one of those looks like, <laughs> you know, he's trying to be friendly to you, but inwardly he's thinking, sucker, I'm about to make a buck. And, and he comes up to you, he's like, hey, my name's Vic, because I don't know, they're all named Vic or something. And if your name's Vic, I'm sorry. Uh, and he comes in, he says, I've got a great deal for you. This is the best day to be here because we are running a one day sale just for you. And, and I've got this great car. It, it's, it's, an old car, it's like a 95, but it only has 40,000 miles on it. It had one owner for the entire life of the car who took immaculate care of the car and extensive records of all the work that was done in the life of the car. Of course, I don't have those anymore, but I saw them, and it was amazing. You're going to love this car, and we're running a great deal on this car. And you think, okay, maybe, you know, let's see them. Seems kind of odd, but I'll try it out. And you go and you, you see the car, and it's obvious as you get close that it is a piece of junk. It is falling apart. It's clear that the fenders are mostly made out of Bondo that have been shaped roughly in the shape of the car, painted over. I mean, big patches of metal have fallen off this thing and been repaired. You look inside, and the upholstery is ripped to shreds. It smells like cheap cigarettes. Uh, the steering wheel is all worn down. The brake pedal, the gas pedal are all worn out. You look at the odometer, and sure enough, it says like 50,000 miles on it. And you think, yeah, there's no way. That was, that was changed somehow. I'm not sure how, but I'm pretty sure it was changed. The tires are bald. And you think, there's no way that this car is what he says it is. I just don't trust this guy at all. And you say, I, I'm not really sure. I think I'm going to go look some more. He says, no, 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 no. Just for you, we'll, we'll bring the price down just this day. But if you walk off this lot, I can't guarantee you this price. You've got to get it right now. And you, your wheels start turning and you think, okay. Tell you what, Vic, I'm going to write up a document that says all the things you just told me about this car. And you're going to sign it. And if any of them proves to not be true within the first year, or if anything goes wrong with this car in the first year, you're going to guarantee that you will fix it or pay to have it fixed. What do you think Vic will say? <laughs> no way. No way. Vic will run away. He'll say, oh, I've got a lot of other customers to attend to. Of course, it's an empty lot, but he'll walk away. Now, let's try car scenario number two. A good friend of, you, of yours that you've known for your whole life 
calls you up and says, hey, I heard you were looking for a car. Now, you've, you know this person, they're honest, they're trustworthy, and they happen to be a car mechanic. And the guy says, yeah, I just I need to get a bigger car. I'm, I'm getting rid of this one. I've kept pretty good care. I do know of some things that are wrong with it. I'll tell you what they are. I'll point them out. I'll show you what I've done. I've got the records. Um, why don't you come and look at the car? And you look at it. It's an older car, but it's a fair price. And he shows you what he's done with it. And you go, okay, I can trust him. I know this person. He's being honest with me. And you're thinking, this is perfect. I'm going to do this. And then he says, here's what I'm going to do, because I want you to know that you're getting a good deal on this. I I want you to know what you're getting into. I'll write up everything I've done to this car and everything that could go wrong. And, And I'll guarantee in the first year, if anything goes wrong, I'll do the work for free. You just pay for the parts. But I'll guarantee that because I want you to know what you're getting into. Would you do it? Yeah, because here's your friend that you trust because you know him already, so he's a trustworthy person, yet he's willing to enter into an agreement that he doesn't have to, but he's doing it so that you can be secure in your understanding of the deal that you're getting. Now, you didn't come here to get a lesson on buying a car, I hope. Today we're going to look at Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, which is about God's desire for us to trust his promises. God wants us to know his promises, and he wants us to be able to trust his promises. And I hope at the end of today that you're going to be amazed at the effort that God has gone to to prove to us that he is trustworthy when he shouldn't have had to do that at all. So let's look And we'll start in verses 13 through 15 at the fact that God keeps his promises. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. In the Old Testament, God promised Abraham several things, but they really boil down to three. He told him, you need to leave your homeland and go to the land that I'm going to give you. So that was one promise. I will give you land. He says to this old man with an older wife who who is past childbearing age, he says, I will give you offspring. You will have descendants. So many descendants, you're going to become a great nation. So that's the second part of the promise. And the third was was sort of a, a broad promise. I will bless you. I will bless you. And through you, I will bless the world. And God comes to Abraham and he makes this covenant, this promise, this contract. And he tells Abraham, take a bunch of animals and cut them in half. Ooh, I know. It's kind of gross. He says, take those pieces of the animals then, put some on one side and some on the other. Now, we say gross and want to call you know animal protection. Abraham understood what was going on. This was a covenant ceremony. It was a way of making a legally binding commitment between two parties. And what Abraham would have expected was, God's making a promise to me, he's going to ask me to make a promise to him, there's the covenant or or the agreement, and the two of us will walk through these animals, because what that's saying is, if either one of us fails to hold up our end of the bargain, may what happened to these animals happen to us. He would have understood that. What he would not have understood was what actually happened. Abraham sat off to the side. And and this 
sign representing God, the smoke and this fire appears, and that goes through the pieces. And God says to Abraham in that moment, this covenant does not depend on you. I am binding myself to this covenant. God says to Abraham, if I don't fulfill my promise to you, may what happened to those animals happen to me. May I be cut in half and put to death. That just blows my mind that God, the eternal, sovereign, all-powerful God, would condescend to humanity, bind himself by this agreement and this promise and this covenant. But that's exactly what he does. Because we have a God who wants us to understand him and to trust him. He thinks and considers it very important that we know that what he is saying is truthful. Now this is interesting because God by his very nature is truthful. God cannot lie. It's amazing that God would make a promise at all because quite frankly, any word from God is automatically a promise. It's not like God's holding two fingers behind his back crossed and going, ah, I didn't really promise. I didn't mean that. He is truthful in everything he says. And he is a God who speaks to us. Look back at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We've talked about this throughout the book of Hebrews. It'll come up time and time again. God wants to speak to us. He is a communicative God. He communicates with us. Scripture is a testimony of this. The prophets are a testimony of this. Jesus himself is a testimony of this. God wants us to know him. And so he speaks. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. And then Hebrews is going to go on, the whole book is going to tease out that idea of what God has spoken, how that is our salvation that is secure in Jesus Christ, and what that means for us as a covenant Christian community. The question is, why does God have to make a promise if every word that he speaks is automatically a promise? God is trustworthy in all that he says. Psalm 33 verse 4 says, For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. So by the very nature of speaking, God is therefore trustworthy because he's just made a promise through his very speech. He doesn't have to do anything else. He is trustworthy by nature. And yet, the Bible's full, full, of God making promises to us. Covenants, oaths, binding himself using language and culturally relevant symbolism that the people would understand. God is taking himself to court and making a commitment to us. Why? Because he wants us to have absolute confidence in the hope that he offers. He wants us to know it and to cling to it, and to trust in it, no matter what's going on in our lives. And Abraham is a great example of this. And verse 15 says, So after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Abraham's life was not easy. And everything that God promised to Abraham, much of it came through, but not all of it. It all did eventually, but some of it was after Abraham's life. And yet Abraham is an example of seeing God's promise at work. In fact, 
If you're here today and you're a Christian, you've accepted Jesus Christ, you are a confirmation of a promise that God made to Abraham thousands of years ago. Because God said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. How did he do that? Well, a descendant came of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And he died on the cross in our place. And all who believe in him become part of this family of Abraham. If you're a Christian, you are a descendant spiritually of Abraham. You confirm the promise that God made to Abraham. But he had to trust. He had to wait patiently. And Hebrews, as we've talked about, is written to a generation of Christians during the New Testament times that were struggling. Not unlike us today. They were struggling, saying, hey, we have this great gospel and it's really exciting and and we're clinging to it and we have this great hope of heaven and that's really exciting and we're clinging to that too, but man, we're just stuck in the middle. We're kind of in the here and now and the here and now kind of stinks. And it's hard and I don't know what to trust in anymore and these things are pulling me this way and that way. And the author of Hebrews is writing scripture to that situation and saying, hold on to truth. God has given us a promise and his promise will never fail. Let's look at how God confirms his promise. Look at verses 16 through 18. People swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. The language of these verses is taken right out of the courtroom of the Greek and Roman Empire. They would have understood this in a way, I think, very differently than us. We see words, oh, I promise. Oh, I, I, I swear an oath, I promise. And we think, oh, it's just words. Our phrase today would be, get it in writing, right? That's our phrase. Their phrase was, get an oath. Get an oath to confirm what's being said. If somebody, let's take the car example, which is weird taking that back to first century Greek, but let's try that. So let's say a first century Greek person is going to sell you their, okay, we'll say chariot. And, uh, you know, they're laying out all the pros and cons of it. You say, okay, I I need a confirmation of what you're saying that it's true. How can I trust you? And they would say, I'll swear an oath. I'll swear an oath. The oath would be a contract, a legally binding contract that they're entering into. And you could take them to court based on that oath. In Israel, the supreme oath was as surely as the Lord lives. That was the greatest oath you could take. Because what they would do is the oath would be based on something outside of the person. It's like me saying, okay, I get it that you can't trust me, but you can trust this, and my oath is based on that. So my oath, if I'm an Israelite, is not based on me, it's based on God. Well, that's pretty secure. For the people in the Greek and Roman world, they would say, well, my oath isn't based on me, it's based on this God, or this goddess, or the Roman emperor. I swear by that. So they would swear by something greater. And the idea is, as long as that thing is true or exists, my oath must stand. It's based on that. Now, this gets very interesting. How can God make an oath? What can he swear by? 
he has to swear by himself. So it's like him saying, okay, I'm saying this to you and what I'm saying is true, but now I'm going to confirm it by an oath. So I'm going to swear by the thing that is absolutely greatest and absolutely true. And you'll know that what I'm saying is true. So God says, I'm going to swear by myself. I give you an oath in my own name. That's kind of mind blowing, isn't it? Because there's nothing greater that he can swear by. Exodus 32, 13 picks up on this. Moses is speaking. He says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Moses is saying, God, you swore an oath. Now, don't get me wrong. God hasn't forgotten the oath. All right, Moses wasn't reminding him of something that slipped off his agenda. God was very well aware of it. But Moses was clinging to this and say, God, you promised and you confirmed it with an oath. God even picks up on this in Isaiah 45, verse 23. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. He's saying, I've made an oath in my own name. And the In Hebrews, it says the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. What that's saying is in the negotiation process or in a a moment of distrust, if somebody says, look, I'm willing to swear an oath, that would be the end of the argument. It would be the end of, I don't know if I can trust you or not. Just like if you were in a negotiation with somebody and they say, look, I'm willing to put it on paper. I will sign my name to this. Then you would say, okay, I've got proof. I've got a legally binding document. And that's what the passage is talking about. It puts an end to the conflict. It puts an end to the doubt. It answers the question, how can I know? This is legal terminology. Think about what this is saying about how certain of God's promises he wants us to be. He's confirming it by two unchangeable things. That's what the author says. The first is his very nature. When God speaks, it's truth, and we can trust that. The second is his oath. He is now sworn by himself, who is unchangeable in his truth, and we can trust that. But now he's also sworn an oath. So he's bound by these two things. Why? Does God need to do this for us? Does he need to give us a promise? Does he need to give us an oath? Absolutely not. But God wants you and me to be absolutely certain of the promises that he has given to us. It's like he's saying, I want you to be doubly sure to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. In this context, it means I'm going to give you proof. It doesn't mean I'll lay it out for you so you can understand it. He's saying, I will confirm this. I will give you proof. And then it says, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. This is not an encouragement that's a pat on the back. Hey, I hope you feel better. This is an encouragement of God saying to us, I am giving you truth. It is truth that is unchanging. It is a promise of what I have done, will do, and are doing right now or am doing right now. It is absolutely certain and I want you to trust in that and that's where your encouragement will come from. It is an unchangeable promise. But we, 
We have to hold fast to it. We have to grab onto it with everything we've got. We have to say, yes, I am trusting in that and in nothing else. I am fleeing to take refuge in Jesus Christ. There is nothing else that this world has to offer me. I am trusting in the promise that I have in Christ. And when we do that, it becomes an anchor in our life, an anchor of hope. Look at verses 19 through 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's going to go on in the chapters to follow to talk about Melchizedek, and I'll I'll hold off on that for now. But look at what he talks about with this anchor. The anchor is the hope. And he says an anchor has to be strong or firm and secure. What does it mean for an anchor to be firm and secure? Well, as I figure this out, and I'm no sailor, but there's two important things in an anchor. One is how strong the anchor is in and of itself, right? If it's made of cheap plastic and you throw it down and the wind starts blowing your boat around, the, pl- the anchor is going to break. It's no good. So they make it out of iron. They make it out of something dense and hard and, and strong and firm. So the anchor itself must be strong but then it has to be put in a strong or secure place. If you're sitting in 20 feet of water and you drop a 10-foot rope with an anchor on it, are you going to be firmly secured? Do that math real quick. Word problem. Ready? X, Y, Z, solve. Uh, No. There's the answer key for you. No. You're not. Your anchor is just going to be dangling in the water, not grabbing onto anything. And when the wind blows or the waves come against the boat, what's going to happen? You're going to drift because the anchor is not secured. If the bottom where, where you're trying to park your boat, see, that's nautical terminology for those who aren't familiar with it. You'll, you'll learn these things. If you want to park your boat, right, and you drop the anchor, and it's just all sandy and smooth down below, is that anchor going to hold firm? There's nothing for it to grab onto. I'm offending Dan said He's a sailor. He's cringing there. Close enough. Let it go, Dan. It's fine. No, so the two things, the anchor itself has to be strong and the place that it is anchored to or sitting in or or, or grabbing onto, it has to be strong. Now look at the text. We have this hope and the hope he's talking about is the promise of God. The promise he's just confirmed by two unchangeable things. Is that a strong anchor? Yes. Strongest there could be. Unbreakable. And where is it secured? It is firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He's talking about the Day of Atonement. The symbol from the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the high priest would enter into the very presence of God and there apply the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant. But that was just a sign. Jesus took himself into the very heavenly throne room of God and laid down his life. And he paid for our sins right there in God's presence. He anchored our salvation, not in some earthly tent made out of animal hides, but in the very throne room of God. And he said, there, I'm going to put your hope. I'm going to put it in the very presence of God, secured by his death, burial, and resurrection. Is that a secure location for our anchor? Yes, absolutely. And so we have this hope 
a hope that is based on the promises that are seen in Abraham, a hope that has been confirmed by God through his speech and through his oath. Do you see the trend here? God wants you to have secure hope. He wants you to have this anchor that is firm and secure. And as if that wasn't enough, he kind of throws out one more thing that he'll pick up on later. We have Jesus, our forerunner. It doesn't just mean he ran ahead of us. It means because he's gone there, we will also be brought there. And it is guaranteed because of Christ. He's going to play that out over the next several chapters and later on in the book as well. What a powerful confirmation. The examples of the Old Testament and the New, the promises confirmed by the oath, the example of Jesus Christ, and the finished work of Christ on the cross. So let me ask you today, Where's your anchor? I think we all need to ask ourselves that constantly. What is my anchor? Number one, how strong is it? Because I think sometimes we have these things that we we grab onto, but then the winds come and the waves come and we realize it was just cheap plastic. And it breaks. And we say, why God? And God says, that was the wrong anchor. Or or we say we have this firm anchor and then we throw it into something shallow and, and, and temporary and it can't hold against the struggles that we face in our life. Maybe you're here today and you feel like you're being tossed around by the wind and the waves. Consider your anchor. God has given us everything necessary, everything possible to know his promises and trust his promises. My friends, in Christianity, the the term blind faith does not apply. God doesn't want you to have blind faith. Christianity is not some some just religious experience that's sort of mystical and out there for people that just don't know any better. Christianity is based on truth, absolutely truth, given over a long period of time, confirmed over and over and over again, committed to by God through promises and oaths, secured through Jesus Christ. It is a rich truth. It's not blind faith. Sink your answer or your anchor there. Grab on to that and let that be your hope in this life. The anchor is ultimately that salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And if that's not your anchor this morning, then I encourage you, look at the promises of God in Scripture. Think about Christ, our Savior, our High Priest. Think about what He's offering to us. Our hope isn't based on what's going on in our lives or our world or the White House or our culture or anything right now. That's not our hope. Our hope's outside of all that. Our hope's based in Christ in the very presence of God. Nothing touches that. Nothing breaks that. Nothing moves that. I want that to be my hope. I want that to be your hope. Because then whatever comes, and and don't get me wrong, I imagine a good ship with a good anchor firmly uh, placed in a good place. Man, when the storms come, it's still hard for the ship. Absolutely. I'm not saying this makes it all easy. But where is your anchor this morning? And for those that have accepted Christ, we're on a journey. And we have this promise of of being with Christ forever. In fact, he's going to come and be with us forever and he'll set up his kingdom here forever. But we're still, you know, on the way. And it's hard on the way. 
And, and the question is, what are we going to do on the way? Are we going to give up and just say, well, I don't know anymore. It doesn't really matter. Or are we going to say, no, I am convinced. I have this promise. It is confirmed. I will hold on to it with everything I've got. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we need hope. And we don't need some man-made, manufactured hope. We don't need some temporary hope that, that we can make up. We need the firm and secure hope of salvation through Jesus Christ. And God, I'm guessing there are people here today and they're feeling a bit tossed about by the wind and waves. And maybe they've, they've dropped anchors in various places in their lives. Maybe they've tried a, a relationship. Maybe they've tried success. Who knows what it is? Except you. Maybe they're ready to give up and think there's just no security at all. I pray somehow these words from your word would point them to Jesus Christ. We have this anchor, firm and secure, not dependent on us or our situation, but dependent on you and your eternal truthful nature and the eternal finished work of Jesus Christ that nothing can change. And God, I pray, may they cling to that hope with everything they've got. May they run to it and find refuge there. May they find a community in this church or one of the other churches in the area that that just gather around them and supports them and encourages them in this hope. And God, I pray when the world looks at us, may they see that hope. May they not see a a bunch of hand-wringing, wishy-washy people, but people that are clinging to the truth of Jesus Christ so when they see us, they think, I want that. And we can say, let me tell you about hope. Hope that never changes based on Jesus Christ. We pray this in his powerful, eternal name. Amen.